here we are again. I can have that feeling at a certain point of retreat of a, almost an unreality. I don't know if you feel it, but the days start to fade and this today, but you're not quite sure what day of the week you're up to. and It's part of a kind of just coming into the rhythm and not needing to hold so much in terms of form. So it can be a very pleasant thing to know that you know, we'll certainly, it'll be very obvious when the time's up. <laughs> you know, so you know, it's kind of relaxing. You can just be here and other people are holding you know, time with folk ringing the bells, you know, taking turns with that, holding the whole meal rhythm, all of this. And, and you can experience yourself more like an organism, organism in a field of organisms. In a sense, this opportunity is one where we can come out of the incrustations that happen when we have to hold everything together. And that's one of the beauties of coming into such a <coughs> retreat space. You don't have to do everything. We're being looked after, we're looking after each other. Someone holds the door for you, someone washes your plate. You clean the shower for somebody else. I sense that we feel ourselves in a web of relationship. And it can be a really profound experience to let yourself feel what it's like to be with other people waking up, whose intention is for your own well-being. Yes, so my encouragement to all of us as we begin our practice, our meditation, whatever, is that we really feel where we are. And we generate a sense of well-wishing <coughs> for ourselves. You know, the sense that what it's like when we're li- living lives where we experience a lot of separation, separateness, having to keep it together. And we know we can relax that. And then we spread it out and we know all around us are beings that share this experience. They may be rustling, they may be breathing heavily, they may be coming in and out at the wrong time. Yeah, but they're part of what sustains us. And it's how do we, in a way, prime our hearts so that we can love the peculiarities of each other. Yeah, as we sit here and you feel even if you've got your eyes closed, the different folk around you. 
You feel the blessedness of this. That we are different. We offer very different things into this world. But all from this waking up place. We come with very different karma. And none of you know who you are unless you fully release the mind. You don't, we don't know who we are even in terms of what we came in with. Some of you will have realised stream entry in other lifetimes. Yeah. You may not know it. Because the mind can become very occluded with birth, with the whole process of incarnating. But when you heard the Dharma, something woke up and said, yes. And this faith was there. Yeah. So it's, it's helpful to keep a big question mark about who we are as we sit here, a sense of we don't even know our capabilities. Because we can practice from the small mind, me getting my practice together, with a kind of time-bound, limited sense. And until I've sat on the mat for 10,000 hours, nothing's going to happen. A whole, a whole grasping at form. It's called Sula Bhattabharamasa. It's a fetter. It is an obstacle. So it's very happen, not, ha- helpful, not from a deluded or a wonderful place, but just from a profound openness and not knowing. We sit here. And we share the blessings of our practice. I'm, unlike yourselves, I'm getting a bit of input from the outside world, so to speak. And this morning I got an email to say, please include Andrew in our practice. So this is a man I know who is being offering enormous things into the community in Australia and it's now critically sick. So we have this sense of, well, let us put our arms around him, around the folk we know, around his partner, just the whole sense of we're we're practising from this place that isn't small. Yeah. And it's not that we're getting ourselves distracted and watching what this one's doing and that one's doing. What I'm talking about is a very broad, stable mind. It's here. Yeah. And, you know, as we talk more about Anapanasati cultivating meditation 
It's how to do that with a mind freed from aversion. You know, so that it has this deep stability. And your mind is here, present, available, deepening because it is such a lovely thing to do. It's nourishing. You know, it's for your well-being. And whatever is arising on the edges, we don't have any contention with. The mind is not fighting with the world. Sounds come, people rustle, the door opens. All of it is welcome because we're here, present, finding out what it's like to be alive and waking up to it. And that, I think as I said the other night, is one of the really radical things about the Buddha's teaching. It may not be so obvious now, but in the time of the Buddha, in the time when those Brahmins showed up, they had an idea that the only freedom was from cultivating and holding very refined mind states. And you know, we'll explore it, but the Buddha cuts through this. It's not about mind states. It's not that mind states, very refined consciousness is not helpful because the karma something is, the more clearly you can see. But it's not about grasping those and it's not about having them. It's about seeing conditionality. So, you know, one of the things in all of this I feel, find helpful is before the Buddha started expounding the Four Noble Truths, the first time he taught at Saranat, one of the things he said is, I have found the middle way. This place, this practice way between the two extremes. And one is the extreme of being lost in sensual delighting. And you'll, we hear in the sutta that he's continually you know, encouraging them not to get lost there. Not that pleasant things are wrong, but if you get yourself too carried away, it can be very hard to actually be awake to things. And he says, that if you get things too rough, it's also ignoble. It's also unsatisfactory and it doesn't help. So we need to come into the middle. And it's something to check out as you're meditating. No. Which way your mind will go, whether it tends to you know, going too far this way into just getting lost in pleasant feeling or it's kind of aligning itself with a kind of savageness to renunciate practice 
And when I'm talking about renouncing practice, I'm really talking about in terms of the mind, a kind of harshness, a non-responsiveness, a not looking after ourselves. You know, not, not wholesome renunciation, but a kind of parody of it. So just to notice. So certainly for me, I see this inquiry of what's here, what does it need, is part of what needs to be established constantly. The sense of really what's here, we can look in terms of the foundations of mindfulness. What's the bodily experience like? What's feeling like? What's mind like? What's the quality of the consciousness? What's the kind of thought formations like? What's happening? Because this is part of waking up. And it's helpful because it grounds. Some of us, you know, pretty earthy. We're happiest in the garden. Others of us can get very lost, either in thinking that that's, you know, not that thinking is wrong, but it can get just so spiraling off endlessly and has lost touch. So. We're practicing to be fully embodied. <coughs> yeah. And you'll find your own ways with that. So you know, there's the there's the sitting practice, and I'll talk about anapanasati for that. And then there's standing, and there are the up walking, there's lying down. So we really know what it is to be in this body. So, with anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, I meant to bring in the sutta to read a bit of it to you, maybe tomorrow. Um, Because it, when the Buddha first teaches it, he talks about its advantages and how it penetrates all the foundations of mindfulness. With this practice, you can really explore experience. So it starts with the sense that we train ourselves to be aware of the long in-breath, the long out-breath. So you're noticing the breath coming in, the breath going out. And it, in the way I experience it, has initially this kind of long feeling. You can feel it filling the body, going out. and You can be sensitive to how it fills the body. In breathing, out breathing. And there may be things we need to help our minds settle with the breath. As I've said, traditionally in the forest tradition, it would be buddho, buddho. Counting issues, things that really help us just start to be with the breath. And what is really helpful 
is to be with it with the sense of not knowing. We don't know who we are and we don't certainly don't know what the breath is. So we're opening to actually feeling it. So it's a real trick to come out of the ideas of what breathing is to actually directly know it. Where do you feel it? What does it do? Mm. So you're you're really attuning, breathing, and the feeling the full longness. So we breathe in long, we breathe out long. And what I find is there will be a certain point where we can, or naturally, the breath starts to get finer, more subtle. And the Buddha talks about breathing in short, breathing out short. And many people explain this in different ways. So you've heard many ways of looking at this. So please use what's helpful for yourself and find out for yourself what you experience. But I find what the shift that happens for me is rather than awareness moving with the breath, it's almost like the breath starts moving through awareness. So the, the, like the mind becomes stable and the breath is coming to it and coming out of it. And it becomes finer. There's less movement, it's just a subtle, subtle experience. And we let that happen. Yeah. And the mind, if we let it become fine, becomes pleased and happy, a kind of sense of well-being is born. And the, and the practice is to take that sense of lightness, well-being, a sense of the body-mind coming together out of fragmentation, and we massage that through the body. I wanted to bring the sutta because the Buddha talks in lovely ways about how you massage that experience through. So that we really fully have this breath embodied. And allow that to do what it does. It is like a warm bath. It is so restful that it is healing for us. And it starts to allay some of the impact that we can have experienced. So we take it as a kind of medicine. This extraordinary ability we have be present, breathing, just knowing it in all its simplicity. It's kind of a miracle. And for some of you the breath doesn't work very well. <coughs> so we're doing this with the bodily feeling, the sense of the earth elements sitting here. We're noticing the subtle movement. 
even if it's just the natural sway that's in the body. When you start tuning in, you're not still at all physically. There are subtle movements happening. So we're attuning, finding out what it's like to have a body, to be here, this first foundation of mindfulness. And it's helpful to get a really strong reference to it because then, as they classically say, even when we're running to catch a bus, we can be present to it. This time now is an opportunity to be present in a more, to a more refined experience. But really, it's building the muscles to be present at any time. Yeah. So, you know, cultivating this. Yeah. And what, what also, as we're here, you know, Barking on a day's practice is, as I said last night, just to be checking what is present in terms of faculty. Is there confidence, this faith, sadha, a sense that we can wake up, that actually it's worth every movement of putting something down and attending, putting down what is hindering us and attending. And they may, it may not seem important each time we make this mind movement, but drop by drop the water jar fills. Do not think any deed is of little worth. This classic teaching from the Dhammapada. <coughs> so you can really feel it in meditation that every time we put down discursive random thinking, just gently and come back into presence, our ability to do this becomes stronger. It's like the water jar becomes fuller and fuller. It becomes easier. So we, we have this confidence that it's actually worth the effort. And we bring this effort forth to be mindful, present here. And we check that this, we have this efforting, this coming into presence. With this clear understanding that understanding is the head splitter. It splits ignorance. It is worth it to practice. Yeah. So we do that in the sitting and we do it standing up. So I got a note asking about you know, some of the other postures. And I spoke at the beginning of the retreat about walking. Just how to stay embodied, to really notice 
when our energy is ahead of us and actually see if we can walk within our own energy field. If we can just be here, now, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And using the ends of our walking path to really frustrate the doing mind. So you really see it. It's a wonderful counter to the sense that there's somewhere to go. And because walking has energy in it, if we're, our energy is quite strong, it can be very helpful in terms of meeting it. The other thing we can be doing is standing up. And I see some of you doing it, but not enough of you. Yeah. Because standing is also a very helpful posture. So if we stand <coughs> up. Yeah. the body can become painful or dull. So it's about coming into presence in a different way in the space. Many of you practice Qigong, Tai Chi, Yoga, so you're familiar with Tadasana, you're familiar with the different disciplines in which we practice that spiritual very well trained, but within our tradition there's a sense of getting the feet so they're stable, you know, usually about hip width apart, just so you're stable, you know, fairly self-grounded, and a bit like you do in a sitting, you, you really make sure that the form is erect, not that you can't wake up from a slumped place, but it's harder. You can see some of the real masters, they're like this. But for most of us, it helps to have the energy that comes from being upright, the upright mind. And notice if we're holding tension anywhere and we relax it. So normally when you relax it, your arms come out a bit from your body. And there are different ways of contemplating this that support our standing because most of us find it a challenge. We haven't developed the kind of um, firing in the brain actually to maintain this posture for a long time. It's a, it's a formal discipline of body and mind. So just notice, some of you will start to feel a bit queasy and you'll have to sit down. It's the posture that some people have to build strength for. It looks innocent, <coughs> but it is a very energised, energising practice. So we have this sense of sitting upright, or standing upright, sense of the earth Below us, yeah, so we're grounded, and the air element above us. You know, so we're in this elemental experience. 
and we keep letting go. So letting the breath go out through the feet, letting whatever arises go, the stress in the body, letting go. And if you've been practicing a lot with the breath, you'll feel the breath put tall, put tall. You let this release down through the body, out through the feet. We breathe up again. So it's a helpful practice to cultivate because a lot of our lives are spent standing. And you, but most of the time we're leaning here, leaning there, you know, a sense of not, not feeling our strength or our stability. So to cultivate it. Because it, it does bring strength to mind. And it gives you an alternative posture to be in. So in monasteries where people are like this, sitting a lot, you'll have people who stand a lot of the time. You'll have people whose predominant posture is walking. And then you'll have people <coughs> whose primary posture is lying down. If we were configured differently, we'd lie down. But maybe we can sit down and again. And I'll talk just a little about lying. <coughs> so, lying meditation. Being being fully aware in this fourth position, as it's called, the most critical cultivation. Because the times when dukkha <coughs> is greatest is probably when we're lying down. Mm. This is how most people die. Mm. This is the posture you take when you're sick. This is where you are when you're up in the middle of the night, worried. Yeah, you're in this posture. So, how to make it a waking up place? And what helps when you take it as a practice is it can be very helpful to take a kind of formal position. So, we're very, we have intention around it this clear intentionality and to <coughs> Buddha cultivated lying on his right side with his hand under his head and his arm along his body. This isn't really long enough for me to do it on. <laughs> yeah. And so it can be that we cultivate put ourselves into kind of formal position. Or we lie on our back, 
with our knees supported in some way and we put our hands in a place where we feel the intentionality. No, here, here, but a sense of composing ourselves. Because the challenge of this posture, it's the opposite of standing, walking, it's that the energy can go so low, it's very hard to maintain mindfulness, as many of you will have experienced. It can be that you're, you know, to not just go to sleep. Yeah? And for most people they'll have a lot of experience of going to sleep in this posture, and that's just how it's cultivated. It takes time and practice. And we attend. It, it may be you need a coarser object than the breath when you're lying. Because the mind's energy is low. So it can be that you use some formal recollection. Like you take a piece of the sutta we're working on and you take a little bit and you just contemplate it. Yeah, so we're actually engaging this wonderful capacity we have to think, to contemplate the Dharma. Or we come and we're really with the physicality of the body and feeling the elemental nature, the weight, the earth element, the warmth, the fire element, the cool, the vibration, the air element, the sense of flow, water, that you're really checking out this elemental nature. Space. So just choose, notice how your mind is, how your body is. We choose an object that's suitable. It may be that from that posture you do metta practice. A sense of compassion here, a compassion for everything, everywhere. Edgeless, boundless. Yeah. So it's to see what's helpful for yourself. And why I believe it's worth cultivating is because when you're very sick, it's very hard to keep the mind under control. Yeah. So to have built the muscles, so the mind has enough strength. Yeah. It's for our well-being. So in the middle of the night when you're awake, and is it foxes we hear screaming off on the edge? You know, last night, middle of the night, did people hear screaming way out that way? No? <laughs> Maybe you will have the good fortune to be asleep. They <laughs> <laughs> might be coyotes. Why be coyotes? Alright. So it's like if foxes well, are kind of quiet. Yeah, alright. In England they scream in the oh, night. Okay. So coyotes. Alright. Yeah. Way off in the edge. You know, and what we cultivate a sense of being in that awake 
state at night, not panicking, and sharing loving kindness. So the question is always, how do we remain wholesome, connected, present? We do this in every position. Yeah. So, I'd said there'd be a bit of time, some questions around practice, so we have a little time before the bell rings, so if anyone's got anything they'd like to ask in this forum. Yes? Are you taking questions about the sutta now? If you like, we'd be yeah. very happy to. Okay, it's been bothering me that Bavari didn't go with his students to see the book. <laughs> it is a little strange, isn't it? So I was um, hoping you would comment on that. It's, it's something that I've always wondered about. He gathers them all up and he sends them off. But he is 102. <laughs> oh, 120, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the other one. It's Pingia who's 102, isn't it? Yeah. So I think he just couldn't. He couldn't do it. Okay. Because if you look on a map where they went, they went on this enormous track. Yeah. But yes, it is the piece missing. I, I looked, you know, I think the first time I heard it, and I thought, you could feel the faith that was aroused in this great search. Mm-hmm. Why didn't the man get going? Yeah, yeah. So I think just a bit like when Pingya returns and Bavari says to him, well, why aren't you with the Buddha, who of course mm-hmm. at that time was really itinerant. Mm-hmm. Wasn't like you went somewhere and there you were with the Buddha. You'd have had to keep on the road. And Pingya essentially says, well, I can't keep up. Eighteen years makes a difference, it seems. (laughs) 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 And, you know, if you read some of the suttas, you realise some of these, of those 16, may have been 16 years old. Because there were Brahmin teachers that came to see the Buddha, who were 16, skilled in the three Vedas, masters of learning, with whole retinues following them. So there'll have been some really young people there, and then these really old practitioners. It's, it is an incredible story, isn't it? Why didn't he go? You know, the, the Fifteen of the Brahmin students in the, in the texts, uh, commentary, say, woke up at the time of these questions being op- uh, answered. Mm. For Pingya, he's reported to have attained stream entry. This sutra itself doesn't say any of this, so we don't know. But I would love to have Sariputta's um, comments on it. Mm-hmm. 
and I'll bring in a few of the other. There are other suitors that comment on this, little, little bits of it. But we have got a text missing a whole volume that, that may tell us why he didn't go. Yeah. Anything else at this point? There's another question about the sutta. Yeah? I didn't understand when they were saying um, they asked the Buddha mentally, yes. and then um, the other uh, people that were already there with the Buddha said that they could see him talking to someone, but they didn't really know what was going on. So they're, they're asking the Buddha mentally, but then later they ask him verbally. I, can you? So the questions that are asked mentally are questions, it's a bit like they've, they've turned up there because their teacher has sent them off. And they have some faith, so they come, you know, as thirsty men coming to water. But they haven't actually got confidence, full confidence. And the Bavari has said to them, if you ask the questions in your mind, you'll know if it is the Buddha, if he can understand them. Yeah. So they ask, you know, how old is he? You know, what are his marks, etc. Et how many students has he? So they're not questions that necessarily everybody else needs to know about. But then at a certain point they go, we're here, it is the Buddha. And then this whole other thing happens. And you probably noticing the the um, ways they describe the Buddha. So this tremendous faith has arisen. So they can no longer be quietly asking things in their heads. <laughs> yeah. But yes, it is a real transition in the thing. So the mental questions are part of the prologue. They're setting the stage for this other engagement. Yeah. You know, what I pointed out last night and really love is the first kind of dharmic thing the Buddha says is this thing about understanding. So we, we, we get the sense of the most essential thing right at the beginning. Dukkha is cause and the path and the possibility of realization. And then they each ask things according to their nature. you speak about this directly, but other teachers in your lineage have said things to the effect that the energy of dukkha is transformative. Mm -hmm. So we speak a lot about the cessation of dukkha, 
but there's this other aspect to it. I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, it's because the Four Noble Truths arise in the same place. And the, you know, without dukkha, without something that encourage us, is, encourages us to be present, we'd just be being lost, wandering. So it has incredible, um, it's a bit like being brought up short, uh-oh, it has the kind of energy that's needed because it's so painful to make this great journey, this search. Now, when you think, if we take what happened in this, this text as a metaphor, there's this terrible experiencing of the head, of ignorance, the dukkha of it. And it's that very energy that sets them on the search. Yeah, is that, is that what makes sense in terms of what you're asking? <laughs> no? I mean, please say more. I guess my question then becomes, if you're completely liberated from that, that friction mm -hmm. of dukkha, then what? <laughs> then your energy, if you're completely liberated from it, then your energy is not tied up in avoiding it running, holding 20 things behind your hand that you're juggling so you can't see them. Yeah? It takes incredible energy to stay ignorant. And so we're freeing that up. You know, a bit like I was saying last night, when you pick something so heavy up, you know, as a painful, obsessive thinking that kind of racks and lacerates the heart. It takes tremendous energy. And so what's freed up when we, even for a minute, think, well, heaven knows. No, I think this, but if I sat over there, I might see it differently. I don't know the truth of this. For now, I'm putting it down. And then there's this huge possibility. Yeah? But we do need that friction until the things happened. Otherwise, we stay deluded. That's why it, we need to come into this place that Dukkha is nothing going wrong in the sense that it's the very thing that, that gives us the encouragement to practice. Yeah? Stay awake if there's no dukkha. Well, 
these degrees of freedom, aren't there? There's sitting here with the defilements of the mind, you know, greed, hatred, all of these things quietened, which is what we experience when the mind settles. And there's a kind of energy and awakeness in that, because the things that have hindered it are we're free from. But for most people, until the mind has finally cut through, has understood really where it needs to be attending, when it's still obsessed by subject, object, this whole experience of consciousness, then when we get up from the meditation cushion and someone trips us up, the whole thing arises again. So the Buddha, whose mind was completely liberated from the taints, as they say, from even the deepest tendencies to ignorance, (coughs) had tremendous energy. It went from having to attend to ignorance to living from a place of compassion. So it's like people whose minds have really seen, have felt the dukkha that beings trapped in ignorance feel. And then their energetic is an outflow from compassion. So it's almost like the um, energetics shift. It's an energy shift. It goes from a kind of wanting to suck everything in this selfing experience to she knowing that's a delusion and and one's life is a, from a place of blessing. You know, and as you know, some of you I've spoken to, we can we can be priming and living from that energetic, even when the mind has times where ignorance secludes it. That we are no longer just trying to suck in get things, me, me, needing this, to actually what's needed around me. Yeah. <coughs> now there's the old Mahayana thing that the Theravanas are selfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we're not, we haven't, you know, some of you will have, but it's not a requirement that you take the Bodhisattva vow, that you're practicing till the end of time for the well-being of all beings. Mm-hmm. It can feel like we're just here doing a practice, waking up. But of course, it's mad to look at it that way because what we're actually doing is we're breaking up the selfishness and self-structures. And when that happens, The movement is naturally one for the well-being of everything, everywhere, without seeing any separation. So, it's about softening this self-boundary, this painful self-boundary.
Well, I had a really been, kind of banal experience that maybe illustrates it, though. So, yeah. to me, it's about dukkha isn't a way of connecting with what's real. So, the first time I was the person who put the silverware in the rack, I did it very in this very orderly way, but it didn't notice there were these signs, little notes that said what should go in each place. <laughs> Today, right, two days later, I saw the, the note, you know, the, the little labels. And so the first time, I mean, okay, I didn't cause a lot of harm, you know, <laughs> in my own order, but metaphorically, like I did, I just, I was deluded, I, I couldn't see the labels, you know, but after some sitting, you know, I put the somewhere in the right place today so that, you know, the person knows what's there and it'll work better. Everybody who comes along. So I woke up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a stream mentor, but I'm doing this. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, that's kind of like, and that's just like naturally compassionate. I don't have to think about, you know, did I take the Bodhisattva? But, you know, it's just easier the person knows what's in them. You know, so I don't do harm. I actually am more beneficial because I... There's not yeah. as much dukkha in the way, right? You know, it's a perfect example, Melissa, that when we're less occluded, we're actually paying more attention. Right. We make it easier well, for those around us. That, yeah, that was what I was We're about. not so caught up in our own thinking, we're not closing the door on someone else's face. <clears throat> yeah, you know, that's exactly. Yeah. Small things, big things, it really just you must have given some people a real. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bad Monday. You know, the other day was horrible. Just make it harder for each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough of that.